We've been wrestling for the last number of weeks with this question of what is Christ doing right now? What is Jesus doing right now? And I think it's helpful for us to do that because we are very good at looking back at what Jesus has done for us. And so we go back to uh, Bethlehem and uh, particularly this time of the year and we think about the birth of Jesus and all the events that are surrounded, surrounding that. We're also really good though at looking ahead. And with our hearts and minds, we are, we are waiting for the promise of Christ's second coming when the heavens will, will, will sort of part and the trumpet will sound and Christ will descend in all his glory. Uh, and those are the two bookends of Advent, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. But I don't know how often we think about the, the middle and what is Christ doing right now? How is Christ uh, serving us? How is Christ working for us? How is Christ, um, uh, uh, what is he doing to make sure we get to the end and get there safely and securely. And there's ways that we can correct that oversight. And that's, first of all, just think that Christ isn't just sleeping. Uh, Christ isn't sort of just floating around now waiting for the trumpet to sound. Christ has ascended to heaven. The ascension is really important for us to think about because the, the disciples saw him go up into heaven. And the Bible describes now what Christ is doing now that he is at heaven. That he ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, but he's not just sitting there. The sitting there is uh, a way of us realizing that he's accomplished something. He's no longer standing. So the sitting isn't a sign of laziness or he's got nothing to do. The sitting is an indication of he's completed something. So we'll talk a little bit about that now or in a couple moments. But so right now, Christ is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. And one of the ways in which we understand what he is doing right now is to think about his role as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that there's these three offices that are ways that we understand what Christ is doing right now on our behalf. So one is we need a prophet. We need somebody who will communicate to us perfectly and clearly what God wants us to know and the things that we need to know. And we had prophets on earth which did that, but they did that imperfectly. Now Christ is the Word. And so Christ right now um, helps us understand that work perfectly. He, he does it through pastors. He does it through teachers. He does it through authors. That Christ now is instructing the church. In fact, in Revelation, we see how Christ is walking amongst the churches. And the words that he gives to the churches are words of warning or words of encouragement. So right now, Christ continues to speak to us, the church, in his role as a prophet. But Christ also represents us to God. And he does that perfectly as our high priest. And so we looked at that last week and the week before in the, in the work of Christ as he sympathizes with us before the Father and as he intercedes for us before the Father. That Christ is right now taking the work that he accomplished when he was here on earth and he's applying it to our lives so that we will make it. So that there will be no lost causes. He, he didn't just die and, and we weren't just saved and then Christ just leaves us alone and says, okay, I'll see you at the end. No, Christ is with us every step of the way, making sure that we will get to the end and we will be perfect. 
And then Christ is also reigning right now. And this is what we'll talk about on December the 26th. The, the reign of Christ right now, that as Christ is in heaven, as he's sitting beside the Father, he is not only reigning in the world, bringing all of it under his authority, and the final thing to be un brought under his authority is death, but he is also reigning in our hearts, and he's transforming our hearts so that we will more and more want to do the will of the Father. We will more and more want to submit to God's reign in our lives. And he's demonstrating what we need in our life. And he's corralling our rebelliousness. He's corralling our disdain for authority by, by showing us what a good king is like. And so right now, Christ is in heaven fulfilling those through, through uh, three roles as prophet, priest, and king. And I think it's also helpful to maybe think of language that will help us put this in context in our life. And I mentioned that often at Christmas time, we talk about the advent of Christ. And the advent of Christ is opened up in two stages, right? The first advent means coming. And so we think about at Christmas, his first coming, when Christ came into the world, and we look forward to his second advent or his second coming. But I think there's a word that helps us add this third reality of what Christ is doing right now, and it's the word appear or appearing. And at the end of chapter 9 in uh, the book of Hebrews, we have this word used in three tenses to describe what Christ is doing right now. So in, in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 9, the writer there says, He has appeared, past tense. Christ appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is talking about the first coming of Christ when he appeared on earth. And he had a job to do. He had a work to do. And that was to put away our sin. And notice the time frame too because it helps us kind of orientate ourselves in the plan of God. He says, Christ appeared at the end of the age. So that tells us that we are right now living in the last days. And that's what the Bible describes as the period between the first coming of Christ and the second. And so Christ has already appeared once. He came to this earth. He was born through, uh, uh, he was born as a child to Mary and Joseph. He grew up as a young man and he walked with God and he died on the cross as a human being. But notice in verse 28, if you have your Bibles open in chapter 9, it says, so Christ will appear a second time. So there's that same word appear. He appeared once when he was born. He's going to appear a second time. And when he appears a second time, he's going to appear to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here again is these tenses of salvation. We have been saved we are being saved, and we will be saved when Christ appears at the end of the age. So we've got the first appearing of Christ to accomplish our salvation. We've got the final appearing of Christ to perfect and complete our salvation. But notice in verse 24, it says this, For Christ has entered, in, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, and notice the language, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You want to know what Christ is doing right now? He has entered into the presence of God 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so what I'm trying to help us understand, and even I'm wrestling with in ways that I never thought I would, is what is Christ doing now as he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf? And we've looked at some of that already. He's our high priest. He sympathizes with us. He has walked with us. He knows what we wrestle with. He understands the strength of temptation. And so that when we go to the throne of God, we find help and grace and mercy to get us through that temptation. And he's interceding for us. We looked at that last week. That he's, he, he, he's, he's saying, well, okay, you just go on your own. No, he walks with us. He prays with us. He knows what we need to get us to the end. And so Christ is interceding for us that we will not fall finally. That we will make it to heaven. So right now, Christ is sympathizing with us and providing us a way through temptation. He is interceding for us, ensuring that if we fall, we will get back up and we will get there. And today I want to just unpack a little bit, if I can, this notion of Christ being our mediator. Uh, mediator, he's, he's, he's bringing us and God together, these two parties that have been separated, and he's bringing us together through a new covenant, which we'll spend a couple minutes looking at. So you might say to yourselves, well, why do we need a mediator? We, we said last week, have you ever thought about a high priest? Do you ever think that, why do I need a high priest? Well, we need a high priest because our sins have separated us from God. And we need one to act on our behalf, who, who presents sacrifice, and for Christ, it's the sacrifice of himself, his shed blood, to bring us into the presence of God so we're accepted by God. Well, we need a mediator now to deal with the things that have separated us from God. And at the core of that is sin. Sin has created this barrier. Sin creates a barrier between us and God. And the Bible says there's not a single one of us that doesn't need a mediator because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that, the wages of sin, is death. Why do people die? They die because of sin. It's not directly connected to a sin that they do at the time and that causes their death. But the wages of sin is death. God has said, if you break my covenant, if you sin against me, the penalty for that will be death. And so because we have sinned, we are separated from God. And so we need one who will arbitrate between us and God. We need one who will take these two parties, God who is offended and angry at us because of our sin, and we who are at enmity with God and hostile to him because of our sin, and we need to be brought together. You see, if you, if you think about it, our hearts are just fully rebellious. And we really don't want God to rule over us. Every time we sin, what we are saying is, God, I don't think you have the right to tell me what to do. And even if you do, I'm going to decide what I do anyhow. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is rebellion. 
Sin is stepping outside of the boundaries that God gives us, much like, say, skiers do. It's ski season now, and they say, I don't really care about the boundary markers. I'm going to go outside of them. Well, that's what sin is. It's, I don't care about God's boundaries. I'm going to go outside of them. Sin is missing the mark or falling short of what God wants us to live up to. And as a result, what we're saying all the time, as I said, is, God, you have no right to rule over me. And so we're, we're mad at God. We're, at host, we're, we're hostile towards God. We don't like his rules. On the other hand, God's wrath is justly towards us because of our sin. And the wrath of God needs to be dealt with. The wrath of God needs to be satisfied, so to speak. The wrath of God isn't something that can just be swept under the carpet as though it doesn't exist. It has to be dealt with. And so God says, I will send a mediator. I will give you one who will mediate between your hostility towards me and my righteous wrath towards you and bring us together. And so we need a mediator because of our sin. And then we might say, well, who is able to mediate? Can't just anybody do that? Can I take that role upon myself and say, well, I'm going to mediate um, myself and my hostility before God? Well, it seems like we can't. And Paul helps us understand that a little bit in the passage that Andrew read to us from uh, Timothy. In Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, or, or chapter 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we read there is one mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Let me read it from the text so that I'm not kind of all over the map here. I can be that way. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's really important that we understand what Paul is saying there. He's saying that the mediator that Paul has, or that God has given us, is the man Christ Jesus. This is where we enter into the mystery that we were singing about. He's saying that this mediator is two natures. It's the man, and it's God, Christ Jesus. This, the unique qualifications of the person of Christ make him the only one that can act as a mediator from God towards us and from us towards God. See, as a man, Jesus understands what we are like. He understands um, uh, human flesh. He was like us in every way except without sin. But the importance of Christmas and the birth of Christ is that God was enfleshed. When, when God entered into the womb of Mary in that incredible miracle of the virgin birth, he was God taking on human flesh. And so we had two natures in a single being. We had one who was fully God and one who was fully man without mixing in the same individual person. And because of that, 
Christ is uniquely positioned to be our mediator because he understands God fully because he is God and understands man fully because he was man and he can intercede for us and mediate between us. Scripture is pretty clear, and we can't go into all of them, but John chapter 1, for instance, begins, In the beginning was the Word, which is Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's speaking about Christ's pre-existence. In the beginning, Christ has always been the Word, and he has been with God. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a clear statement about the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Christ was God. But then you read down in verse 14, and John says, The Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the marvel of the birth of Christ is that he was fully man, and yet he remained fully God. It's this incredible Mystery, but it is what enables Christ and Christ alone to be our mediator. As a man and through his humanity, uh, humanity, God becomes approachable to us because Christ as a man approached God and so we through Christ as men and women can approach God. Through his humanity, Christ fully identifies with us. It's not that he, he, he never was one of us, and so he doesn't know how we think. He doesn't know how we feel. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. He doesn't know what it's like to be sad. He doesn't know what it's like to be angry. No, he knows that because he was fully human. And from the other side, because he was God, the redemption that we receive is an eternal one. Because it's God who died for us. No. It was the blood of God that was shed through us that provides for us an eternal redemption. And because he was God, his sacrifice isn't sufficient just for him, but it's sufficient for all who God wants to give it to. I read this quote the other day, which I thought summed it up. The reason... Christ became man. So the reason God became man was to die. Now work that through in your head just a little bit. The reason he became man was to die. As God, pure and simple, he could not die for sinners. God can't die, right? God is immortal. God is eternal. So as God, pure and simple, he could not die. But the reason he became a man was so that he could die. As a man, he could. His aim was to die. Therefore, he had to be born human. He was born to die. Good Friday is the purpose of Christmas. That's why there's only one mediator, loved ones. Because that mediator is both man and God. So it's the uniqueness of his person that qualifies Christ and Christ alone to be the mediator between us and God and God and us. And Peter goes on and he tells us the work that he did, the, the core of his mediation, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We don't think these things through. It's, it's really hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around this tough stuff because we don't really think about the need 
for sacrifice. We, we don't really think of our sins as that big a deal. We don't really think about what it is that God was up to when Christ died and gave him his life as a ransom for us. But when we sinned, what happened is we became captive to the law. And how do we know we became captive to the law? Because we all die. The wages of sin is death. And so we need to be ransomed from that captivity. We need to be freed from the grip that the law had on us as a result of our disobedience leading to death. And therefore, Christ died in our place, sacrificed his life for us, and so we will not die eternally. We may die physically, but God will raise us from the dead because God has dealt with the penalty of our sin by becoming the ransom that we needed to pay that penalty. That ransom was paid by Jesus Christ, as I said. And who is the ransom for? It's for any and all who will look to Jesus. And so he is unique in his person, and therefore he can mediate for us. And by his death, he has dealt with our enmity and our hostility and with the wrath of God towards us. He has paid the penalty of God's wrath because of our sin. So Christ then, why do we need a mediator? Because we have sin. Can anybody be a mediator? No. It has to be someone who can fully identify with both parties. And that is Jesus Christ. And then finally, what does he mediate? I don't know if, if we think about these things, but what does Christ mediate for us? What does, what, is, what does Christ bring together? What does Christ do to bring us together? Well, we looked at that when we read Hebrews 8.6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry right now that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better and it's enacted on better promises. And so what does he mediate? A new covenant. A, a, a new... A, 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 a new law, a new way of relating. And in Hebrews 9.15, it says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Christ mediates a new way for us to be in relationship with God and for God to be in relationship with us. And so I just want to take just a couple minutes then and unpack why it is we needed a new covenant. Like, did God make a mistake when he created the first covenant or established the first covenant with us? Was the fault with God or was the fault with us? Remember when we, every time we get together and celebrate the Lord's table, do you remember the line that we say? This is the cup which is my blood, the new covenant in my blood. In other words, when we drink the cup, we are celebrating and reminding ourselves and being thankful for the fact that by the shedding of his blood, Christ now has purchased for us and ratified for us in his role as mediator a new relationship between us and God and God and us. So I, I want to just kind of open up these two covenants um, for a couple moments with us. The, the first covenant was the covenant that was established through the Ten Commandments and the law 
when the people came out of the land of Egypt. And you can find it if you want to read it. It's in Exodus 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. That's the old covenant, and we'll come back to that in, in a second. But what's the new covenant? Well, the new covenant is what we read in Hebrews chapter 8. It's a quotation. It's actually the longest um, single Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And it comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, where God says, I will replace the first covenant with this new covenant. And that in itself is staggering. If you have your Bibles, um, let's, let's kind of go through Jeremiah rather than through Hebrews. But go through Jeremiah. Um, starting at verse 1, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Now that in itself is shocking. It really should be shocking to us. And why should it be shocking to us? Because we completely rejected God in the first covenant. We were rebellious. We are stiff-necked. We said, I will not obey your laws. Uh, the people of Israel said, I will not follow you. I will not obey you. Um, that was their issue again and again, was the rebellion against the laws that God had created. They were stiff-necked. In fact, they were so stiff-necked and rebellious that God told Jeremiah not to pray for them. They, were so, um, they had so offended God. And by all reasoning then, there's no way that God should try again. None whatsoever. And so even those words in itself, where he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah are shocking words. But they're also amazing words. And what God says there, he says, I, I will make a new covenant with them, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of Egypt. So there's going to be a difference between these two covenants. Now notice, the difference is not with God. He says, I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. There's this gracious love of God, this compassion for us. Um, holding somebody's hand or taking somebody's hand is often just a sign of love and affection. It's a sign of guidance. It's a sign of security. It's, it's just a whole number of things wrapped up in that one sort of act of holding hands with somebody. But then he, he says not only uh, that, that there's no lack of intimacy because he takes them by the hands, but there's no lack of commitment. Because he says there, though I was their husband. You understand what God is saying? He was committed to them in a covenant of marriage. And that his commitment was to be faithful to those people. That he would never be unfaithful to them. He would never desert them. He would never walk away from them. He would never be enthralled by another bride. His eyes were on his people and his people alone. But the issue wasn't with God and his intimacy or his affection or his commitment to us. But notice he says in uh, verse 32 of Jeremiah, my covenant that they broke. The issue was not with God. The issue was with us and our unwillingness and our unfaithfulness to that covenant that God had made with us. And so what's going to be the difference between these two covenants? There's a lot of them, but one of the single differences is this. That the significant difference between the first and the second covenant 
is that this new covenant or this second covenant will not be sabotaged by human sin. This is remarkable. God is going to do something in us that will make it no longer possible for us to sin. That it will make it no longer possible for us to be unfaithful to him. God will work in such a way so as to overcome and defeat the failure and the fickleness that we bring into this relationship. And the new covenant will deal with our sinful human inability. It will just completely obliterate our sin nature and our tendency to sin. This is what God is going to do through this new covenant which Christ is going to mediate. See, the first covenant was external. It was written on two tablets of stone. And, and it, was, it was something that was placed in the ark. And it was outside of people. And yes, they were to follow it. Yes, they could bring it into their heart. Yes, some would memorize it. Yes, some would tie it around their heart. But never would anybody do that fully. And it wasn't internalized because it was outside of us. And so we've walked away from it. It, it lost its power over us. It was unable to perfect us. But the new covenant, do you understand what, what, what is being said here? The new covenant is going to be inside of us. Not outside of us on stone tablets, but actually inside of us, in our minds and in our hearts. God will so transform us and place his law in us that we will not be able not want to walk away from him. Notice, he doesn't get rid of the law either. It's not that he looked at the law and said, well, this is really a bad idea, you know, that, that we would have these Ten Commandments. No, what he does is he says, no, it's a really good idea. The fault is with sinful human men and women. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stick my law actually inside of them. And I'm going to so transform them through the perfect sacrifice of Christ that they will never, ever, ever, ever be unfaithful to me again. They will never, ever sin again. That's how God makes this new covenant better. It's not an improvement in God. It's an improvement of the work of God in us. And the law that he places in us, the law that he plants in us, will be fully obeyed and followed and loved by you and us. It's, this, it's the scope and the success of law keeping. He says we won't need anybody to teach us anymore. We won't need anybody to take this external law and explain it and teach it to us so that we can absorb it. He says, it will be inside of us. And I will be their God and they will be my people and they will know me. This is an incredible thing that he's saying here. And this new covenant, how does it, how does it take effect? Well, the old covenant, remember, Moses had to... Uh, had to do all these sacrifices and then take the blood from those sacrifices and sprinkle them on the things of the altar and sprinkle them on the people. 
But we know, I think if you remember from last week, that the blood of bulls and goats is unable to deal with human sin. And the ineffectiveness of that was seen that, that they had to constantly make sacrifices, that every year the high priest had to go back because sin was never finally and fully dealt with. But the new covenant is ratified by a better sacrifice and by a better priest. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. Actually, the blood of God, as Acts tells us, that ratifies this new covenant and this new relationship. And it is a sacrifice that was offered once for all. It is not a sacrifice that has to be offered again and again and again because it was the perfect sacrifice for us. And the fact that Christ sat down tells us that the work is finished. And so Christ mediates now this new covenant with us. The, the covenant has been established and ratified when Christ died on the cross and shed his blood. It's completely done, but now it is being applied to our lives. And that's what Christ does. He, he works to, to explode the law in our hearts and minds so that more and more we will want to obey, more and more we will desire to obey, more and more through prophets and preachers and teachers, Christ reminds us of that reality of that, of that um, covenant that Christ has created to us. And he is meeting that, mediating that to the day when he comes back and it will be fully affected in our lives. Do you know that? That at the end of this age, when Christ comes back, the fullness of this covenant will be experienced by every single one of us. And as we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, there will never ever be the possibility that any one of us will ever walk away from God. Because this covenant that Christ has purchased with his blood has assured us that God will perfect us. And notice what it says at the end. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The sacrifice is finished. God's wrath has been satisfied. Our enmity and our hostility has been squashed and replaced with submission and love and desire and recognition of who God is. And God will remember our sins no more. That is incredible, loved ones. It's a longing, I hope, that all of us have. What is Christ doing right now? He is mediating this ratified covenant, taking us before God and working that out so increasingly day by day as we grow in godliness and sanctification and as we repent of our sins, we are beginning to see the fruit of that in our lives. And we know that God will never, ever walk away from us. Amen. It's incredible, loved ones. This is what Christ is doing right now for you and I. You can wake up in the morning with confidence and joy and hope 
to know that he who began a good work in you will give up, will be faithful to complete it when he comes again. Thank God. Father, we come before you today. And thank you, Father, for turning our hearts towards, I think, probably one of the things that we neglect so often as Christians, the present work of Christ on our behalf. The only way that present work of Christ on our behalf can happen, though, is because he appeared a first time. He came a first time. That he was born of Mary, that he set aside his prerogatives of God and came to this earth and took on the form of a servant. But because in that nature he was fully God and fully man, he is now able to sympathize with us, to intercede for us, and to mediate this new covenant that you have made with us. Father, I'm amazed that it's all of you. All the I wills, I will do this, I will do that, I will do that. Your grace and your mercy is beyond comprehension. Father, may we receive it with joy, with thankfulness, with gratitude. And may we anticipate your coming when that fullness, the fullness of that new covenant will be realized in our hearts and in our lives. What a day that will be. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.